If you would like, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. We'll read verses 28 and then through verse 10 of chapter 3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Appreciate the uh, scripture reading, Grayson. Appreciate the prayer, Will. Appreciate all of you being here today. Excited to worship uh, God here with you, to commune with Christ, to study God's Word, and uh, excited to begin a new series on the book of 1 John. You might remember I've done a few book series recently. Uh, A while back, I did one on the book of Philippians with a theme of finding joy. Uh, More recently, completed a series on the epistles of Peter with a theme of living as an exile. And this morning, we want to begin a series on the book of 1 John. And I want to begin with some brief uh, introductory remarks about the book of 1 John. Uh, There's only uh, four books, I guess, in the New Testament that don't name their author. Uh, Letters, I should say, epistles, letters in the New Testament that don't name their authors. The three letters of John in the book of Hebrews. And so I want to begin by briefly uh, giving some reasons why we can have confidence the book of 1 John was in fact written by John. Uh, Some of the main evidence or compelling evidence to believe that is from early church history, the testimony of early church history um, in early Christian writers who knew John or knew those who knew John. And if Uh, The book of 1 John did not reflect the teaching of John, the style of John. Uh, You would have thought those who knew John would have detected that. So that's very compelling reasons to believe uh, that the book of 1 John was written by John. The first verse of the book uh, begins with the author stating, declaring, identifying himself as an eyewitness of Jesus, of Christ. And that would seemingly narrow the possibility significantly. And some of the statements made uh, would imply that it was probably an apostle. The author doesn't feel the need to identify themselves uh, for the book 
to be accepted, which would imply that it was written by someone who had obvious authority and obvious recognition in the church in the first century like an apostle. The style, the terminology, uh, key favorite words, the turning of phrases in 1 John are remarkably similar with the Gospel of John. In preparing for this series, I obviously studied 1st, 2nd, 3rd John alongside the Gospel of John. And when you do that, if you go read those books uh, together, you'll see some of the same arguments, some of the same subjects, some of the favorite words, uh, phrases, uh, arguments, the, the way that he argues, that style, very similar. The books begin and they end with very similar thoughts. When you look at the purposes of these books, the Gospel of John was so that the audience would believe Jesus uh, Christ is God's Son. First uh, John, uh, similar purpose, slightly different, building upon the Gospel of John, written to those who do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that they may uh, know that they have eternal life, and that they may continue to believe. So very similar purposes. And so whoever wrote the Gospel of John also wrote First John. And we know that the author of the Gospel of John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And evidence is very clear that that was, in fact, the Apostle John. And so when we consider the purposes of First John, John gives these and states these throughout this book. You'll see the word that, so that, because, and whatever follows those words are the, the reasons, the why, the purposes. Chapter 1, that you may have fellowship with us and with the Father and the Son. That you may have fellowship with God and God's people. Next verse, that your joy, some translations say our joy, may be full. You can't fully enjoy your salvation if you aren't confident that you really have it. That's one of the purposes. Knowing that you have eternal life, having full assurance is necessary to experiencing fullness of joy. Chapter 2, I write to you so that you may not sin. This book will keep you from sin, but sin is going to keep you from this book. But if we do sin, because we're not perfect, and he stresses that, we're going to see. He's not talking about sinless perfection. He's talking about a lifestyle, a way of life. If we do sin, we have an advocate. 1 John will lead you to sin less, but not sinlessness. We're not perfect. We have an advocate. Same chapter, he goes on to say, I write to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the Father. Different levels of Christian maturity, I believe. And we see this same concept in verse 12, verse 13, this repetition, I believe, for emphasis we overcome the evil one with the Word of God. We see that's the weapon, the tool we have to defeat Satan and his accusations and his lies. But essentially saying, I'm writing to you, whoever you are, any Christian, uh, those who are new converts, who have recently been forgiven, uh, those who are young men, who are a little more mature, who have overcome the evil one, those who are mature Christians, who have believed from the beginning, I'm writing so that the strong will stay strong. This balance we're going to see throughout this book. I want this confidence, this assurance we have in our salvation to motivate not complacency, but to motivate diligence and vigilance. Same chapter, he says, I write to you concerning those who try to deceive you. And this is so much of the context of this book. Those trying to deceive you, those who went out from you, uh, went out from the church and were teaching false doctrines. I believe he's talking about Gnostics and the doctrines of Gnosticism. 
from the Greek gnosis, which means knowledge. These were people who believed they had received a special knowledge, a fuller, deeper revelation that nobody else had. And they believed in uh, dualism and some of the Greek philosophies and believed that uh, matter was pure evil, the flesh was pure evil, that the spirit was good. So there were a lot of doctrinal, theological, uh, ethical implications from those doctrines we're going to see throughout the course of our series. But for the purposes of our study this morning, I just want to point out, if you believe that, if you believe in dualism, uh, Gnostics then denied the incarnation. They denied the possibility that God could become flesh. If God is pure spirit and pure good, and flesh and matter is pure evil, God could not become man. And so if we don't keep this context in mind, we're going to miss a lot of the nuance. We're going to miss a lot of what John is saying and why he's saying that. That's so much of the context is dealing with, refuting the doctrine of Gnosticism. And there were two main flavors of that at the time that he was dealing with. Docetic Gnosticism from the Greek to seem. These were those who were teaching that, G- that Christ didn't really become a man. He just appeared to be. It was an apparition. He seemed to seem to be a man. Then there was Serinthian Gnosticism named after Serinthus person named Serenthus, if you want to know how John felt about Serenthus, there's a somewhat humorous um, tradition given to us by Arrhenius on the account of Polycarp, who was a pupil, a disciple of John, about how John felt about Serenthus. You can go read about that. But Serenthus essentially taught that, uh, denied the deity of Jesus. He taught that Christ descended upon a man named Jesus at his baptism and then departed before his passion, before his crucifixion. And so some denied Jesus was Christ, some denied Christ was Jesus. That's the context. And so all these purposes ultimately find themselves in this thematic statement at the end of the book, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. These things I've written to you concerning the whole book, it's what the book's about, that you may know you have eternal life. And so our special focus and emphasis is going to be how we know we have eternal life. And I hope you find that relevant. I hope you find that encouraging. It's been incredibly helpful for me. I guess I can speak for myself. I don't know if I can speak for all of us in saying that there are times I have struggled with assurance. I have struggled with confidence in my staff, because I know who I am. <laughs> uh, over, over time, I know more and more about who my God is and, and His righteousness and His holiness. And so there's times that it's, it's easy to question, how could God ever save me? How could I ever uh, get to heaven? And how do I know that? How can I know like Paul knew and like Peter knew and like John knew? How can I, without being arrogant and presumptuous and self-righteous and overconfident, how can I know that I'm going to heaven? And that's pretty important when I think about death. And so I hope you find these things helpful uh, and encouraging. I've been extremely excited to begin uh, this series in the book of 1 John. And so one of John's favorite words you're going to see in the gospel and in his epistles is no. No. Certainty. Full understanding and appreciation that you may know you have eternal life. And I want to ask you to consider throughout our, do you know you have eternal life this morning? Somebody says, well, you know, it seems arrogant, presumptuous, to declare that with complete confidence. <laughs> I don't want to be complacent and overcome. You know, I guess we'll find out once we die. And my response to that would be, isn't that a little late to find out? We want to know now. And I think there are 
things given to us in the, the, the Word of God, in the First John in particular, where we can know with all confidence that we have eternal life. And it's not a result. He didn't say that you may feel you have eternal life. It's not subjective, thank God, based on how I feel in the morning, which is an emotional roller coaster on how I feel if I'm saved or not. It's based on the objective testimony of God given in the, the promises of God, by the plan of God, revealed to us in the Word of God, that we can know with complete certainty, objectively, that we do have eternal life. And one of the interesting things about the book of 1 John, that's somewhat unique and a little bit different, is it's not linear. He doesn't write in a linear fashion, which is somewhat of a struggle for me, if you know me. Uh, but he, he uses a literary technique known as amplification, where he cycles around these concepts over and over. Life, light, love. And he just keeps cycling around those concepts. He keeps coming back to them. And so you'll find yourself reading uh, these epistles, and you'll, say, you'll think, he just said that. <laughs> and he's circling back. Cyclical repetition, circling back to these major concepts, but each time he's taking a, a larger, wider swath, covering a different angle, a different nuance. And you'll see a lot of stark contrast in the gospel and in these epistles light and dark, good and evil, love and hate, Christ and Antichrist. And so, if we were going to break uh, this book up into a series, as we plan to do, uh, the sub-themes within the book, I believe, center around the, these things he cycles around. Uh, and it's the statements he makes about God. God is life. God is light. God is love. And so if we want to know, do I have the Father? Do I have the Son? Do I have God? Have I been born again? Do I have the life that's associated with God and being godly? Do I have life? Do I have light? Do I have love? That's the proofs John gives us in this book. And so we want to begin this morning in this first part with uh, the assurance, the evidence that we have eternal life is life itself. Uh, new life uh, specifically. 1 John 1, uh, the prologue, the introduction to the book, which is always very important. Very similar to uh, John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, the introduction and prologue there. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And I want us just to note here in the introduction, he tells us about the word of life. The life was manifested. We declare to you eternal life. And so if we have fellowship with the Father through the Son, we have fellowship, we have access to, we share in eternal life. And so we want to ask three questions this morning. We want to explore three questions. First, why was the life manifested? Why did He appear? Why the incarnation? It's kind of interesting the way this played out unintentionally at this time of year when there's a special focus often uh, in the, the incarnation of Christ, that I began this series in this first part at this time. Uh, why, why the incarnation? Why did God become man? That's the first question we want to ask. Secondly, how do I access that life? How do I receive that life? And then finally, what's the evidence, what's the proof that I have this life? And that leads into the rest of our series on these assurances that we have eternal life. And so I want us to notice John says in chapter 4, verse 14, the Father has sent the Son, why? As Savior of the world. That's the reason for the incarnation, for His manifestation, for His appearance, to say God so loved the world, John 3, 16. And so as we look at the specifics and the nuances of that, why the life was manifested to save the world, John writes in chapter 3, see, 
Behold, right in the middle of the book, he says, that's that's an attention grabber. I, I want you to pay, this is important, pay attention to this, focus on this. What are we seeing? What are we focusing on? What are we beholding? See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. John wants us to join him in awe of the love and grace of God that he has given to us in making us his children. God loves us and desires us so much, he sent his son to die to make that possible. To bring us into a relationship with him. To be his children and his family and his kingdom. He paid an infinite cost for you. Do you think he's going to throw you away? Do you think he's not going to protect that investment? Do we still doubt and not trust? Are we not focused on? Do we not see the love that God has for us in making us His children. You know, God didn't just send and sacrifice His Son to propitiate His righteous wrath that we deserve, but He went above and beyond that and made us His children. He could have redeemed and rescued and forgiven and saved us and stopped, but He went further. He didn't settle for propitiation, He settled for adoption. And verse 2 connects the love of God in making us His children. This present experience is the reason why we have this future hope. The way the Bible defines hope is not a a wishful thinking. It's an expectation. It's a confidence. Uh, Crossing my fingers won't get me, but His cross will, and I have this confidence. What we will be is because of what we are experiencing presently right now. We have this promise, this hope, this expectation of perfection in the future because we are God's children right now. And we are adopted into God's family. We are God's children through the new birth we're going to see in a moment. So He came to make us His children. Doing that, destroy the works of the devil. Notice grace in red in verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason for the appearance, the manifestation, the reason for the incarnation was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to save through destruction. If you want Him as your Savior, you have to accept Him as your destroyer. And what did He come to destroy? The works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? I believe this context, this text, gives us the answer to that. Notice He says in verse 5, He appeared to take away sins. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. He came to destroy sin. He came to destroy sinning. The works of the devil... Sin. John defines that as lawlessness. The work of the devil is to tempt us to rebel and reject God's authority, God's rule, God's will. And Christ appeared. Christ came to destroy not just the guilt of sin, but the dominion of sin, the power of sin, the works of the devil, so that just as I am is not how I'm going to stay. I'm not going to try to send my way into heaven. And he destroyed by appearing. That's how he he destroyed through his life and through his death, burial, and resurrection. So Christ's birth, his appearance, plus our new birth, is what destroys the works of the devil, what destroys sin. But without my new birth, his death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel won't destroy sin in my life. Both are essential. And so we're going to see this clear connection between the birth of Christ and our new birth, between the incarnation and my regeneration. The life was manifested... 1 John 4, 9, And this, the love of God, was manifested toward us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, here's the reason, that we might live through Him to bring us life. And so nothing is more critical and important than having eternal life, than having soul security. And the question is, how do I get it? How do I access it? God has told us 
God has given us His testimony. He's witnessed. John says, if we accept the testimony of men, and we do, how much more should we accept the testimony of God, the greater testimony of God? And we think often about us witnessing for God and us giving our testimony, and we do that. But here we find God's given us His testimony. God's given us His witness, and we need to listen very carefully to it because there's no greater testimony than testimony of God. And here's the testimony that God gave us grace. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. According to the testimony of God, the way to have eternal life is to have a Son. And you can have a lot of things in this life, but if you don't have the Son of God, if you don't have Jesus Christ, you don't have anything that lasts. You don't have anything that's permanent. And note that this clearly states our salvation is conditional. Whoever. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. That's conditional. It's not universal. Life is in the Son. So how do we have the Son? That's the next question. What does it mean to have something? Think about the word have. When you have something, relationship, money, but you have money, it, it, it's, it does its thing for you. It works for you. And so having the Son means having all that He came to do for you. When you have the Son, you access all that He came to do for you. If you want to overcome doubt, discouragement, despair, uncertainty, if you want to fill your heart and mind with assurance, write down all that Christ has done, is doing right now, and will do for you in the future. And you will never run out of things to write about. Ultimately, if you have the Son, you have life. Jesus said that over and over in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the true bread, the manna from heaven. I am living waters. You eat my flesh and, and drink my blood, you have life in you. I came to bring you life, abundant life. You have all that an omni-God can do for you. We'll notice a few verses in the book of Hebrews, another book that gives us, uh, that should fill us with such uh, assurance that we have and enjoy as Christians. In chapter 2, he describes Christ as the captain of our salvation. And that word captain there means he's the, the one who takes the lead. He provides the occasion for something. So for me to doubt that I can have salvation in Christ says a lot about my confidence in the captain of my salvation. God wants us in heaven. He sent Christ from glory to bring many sons to glory. Christ came and died to take us there. Christ is for us, not against us. Christ wants us. He desires us. How much clearer could He make that? We've already looked at a few. Behold the love that God has for us and making us His children. He tasted death. He sent His Son to taste death for everyone, which includes you and includes me. We have an advocate. We have a great high priest, the fulfillment of all the symbolism and shadows of the old covenant, the old priesthood. We have a faithful high priest who became like us, who relates to us, who is perfect in His priesthood. And there's a mercy seat in the presence of God, in the holy of holies in heaven, that He's taken His own blood. And He's made atonement. He's made propitiation, this place of atonement. He's covered our sin with His blood on the mercy seat. He gives us access to this throne of grace where we can come boldly and confidently because of what He's done, what He's doing, that we may receive and find help and grace in time of need. We have this as a sure and steadfast hope, a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So if we are anchored in Christ, if we have the Son, we're anchored in heaven. Our anchor is in heaven because that's where Jesus is. 
The word translated sure here is where we get the word asphalt. Our anchor is held securely in heaven if we're anchored in Christ. The one who always lives to make intercession for us. And that's in the present tense. It means that he doesn't, didn't just make intercession and mediate for us 2,000 years ago. He continues to do that right now for us. He appeared on earth, and then He appeared in heaven for us. And so we're admonished, look to Jesus. Focus on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the author of our salvation. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He gives us access to the presence of God, to the throne of God, that we can find grace and mercy and help in time of need. And that ought to fill us with tremendous joy and assurance and confidence and boldness. But it's clear that not everyone has the Son. Not everyone has this life. Whoever, we talked about, it's conditional. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, John says in chapter 3, verse 2, which defeats the doctrine of limited atonement and Calvinism, but it's conditional on whosoever. So how do I get the Son? John makes it clear, believe and be born again. Echoing what Christ taught, what we see in the Gospels. Believe me, born again. Without the new birth, I'm dead in sin. I don't have eternal life. I don't have fellowship with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I'm not a child of God. I'm a child of the devil. So how am I born again? What do we believe and why should we believe it? What we saw in the introduction, we believe that God became man for our redemption. That's what we believe. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And our confidence corresponds with the evidence, the sure foundation upon which our faith is built. Another one of John's favorite words, testimony, witness. We have this, the testimony of God that support our convictions that Jesus is the Christ and that the life is in His Son. How do we know that? Well, he says because He came in the flesh. His incarnation, His appearance, We've seen him, eyewitness testimony, which is the most powerful form of testimony that there is. God became man. And that's been a controversial doctrine from the days of John till today. And I believe that people have stumbled over that, not because of the concept of an omni-sovereign God being capable of becoming a man, but when God became man, He made it clear man can't become God. If Jesus is God's Son... I've got to accept Him. I've got to obey Him. I've got to submit to Him. That's what we stumble over. And so the doctrine of the incarnation has been a foundational, fundamental test, John emphasizes, of, of orthodoxy, of spiritual authenticity. He came in the flesh and He came with water and blood. And that's one of the more challenging statements in this book. When you study it, some see some symbolism when, in John 19 when they pierced His side and out came water and blood. Some see in this, verse 6, uh, talks about He came, point tense, His incarnation. Next verse says that the water and blood continue to testify. And some see in that the continuing practice of Christian baptism, present tense, where we proclaim that we believe he, He's God in the flesh, that Jesus is God's Son, that we proclaim that faith uh, in being born again. But when you consider the context, again, of Gnosticism, the context of this book, in particular, when you consider Serinthian Gnosticism, which denied that Jesus was Christ, uh, 
that said that Christ descended upon Jesus at His baptism but departed before His crucifixion, John's emphasizing He was Christ at His baptism and He was Christ at His crucifixion. At the beginning and end of His ministry, when the water flowed and the blood flowed, He was Christ. His life and His death both testify and prove that He is God's Son. And we have also the continuing witness of the Spirit. The Spirit that descended upon Jesus at His baptism and the voice of God, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the darkness that covered the earth whenever He was crucified and the miracles He performed by the Spirit and the miracles the apostles performed and the apostolic preaching and testimony and revelation that continues to witness to this truth, Jesus is God's Son. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so we have these proofs. We have the preaching of the proofs. John says, we bear witness, we declare, and then we have the personal reception of these truths, of the proofs, through the new birth. John says, you got to believe and be born again. It's echoing what Jesus said in, in John 3, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And I want us to think about sometimes when we get into these discussions with people and doctoral discussions, defining words. What's the word must mean? Something so simple as, what does the word cannot enter mean? Making it clear that you cannot enter, you can't have the Son, you can't have the life that's in the Son unless you're born again of water and the Spirit. And to avoid the, the clear import of that statement, many have tried to come up with ways to explain to themselves and explain to others how that water doesn't mean water in this passage. Some of gone as far to argue that the water here in John 3, 5 is amniotic fluid. That Jesus is telling Nicodemus that you have to be born physically before you can be born spiritually. You have to be a real person. You have to exist before you can be in the kingdom of God. That's a truism that was not necessary. That's the misconception Nicodemus had. How do I get back in my... He's thinking physically. How do I get back in my mother's womb? And if water here in John 3 means amniotic fluid, what does it mean in the same chapter in verse 23? Or we're told John was baptizing in a certain place because there was much water there. Was he baptizing because there was much water or much amniotic fluid there? Some will say, well, the water in John 3, 5 is the Spirit. Sometimes we see in the Gospel of John, Jesus described the Spirit as water, as living water. That would have Jesus telling Nicodemus, you have to be born of Spirit and the Spirit. That seems awfully redundant, doesn't it? That seems awfully redundant, doesn't it? So if a person living in the first century before Calvinism, before doctrinal agendas and theories and creeds and plans of salvation created by men, read this verse, this statement, having seen the multitude of baptisms in water by John and by Jesus and His disciples and Jesus' baptism in water Himself, how would they interpret these passages? Well, I'll tell you how they interpret these passages. If you go study the writings... In early church history, there was no controversy. Unanimously, they considered this to be in reference to water baptism and that that was essential to entering the kingdom as Jesus stated it was. In fact, some scholars will argue from the time of Nicodemus's misunderstanding, this was not misunderstood. There was no controversy until John Calvin, hundreds of years later, who overreacted to the Roman Catholicism perversion of baptism as a sacrament, that there was some special power in the water instead of emphasizing the blood and the faith and the trust. Even Calvin admitted his teaching on baptism was new. And yet people will say, well, if you believe this is, uh, uh, 
water baptism, you're teaching baptismal regeneration. You're preaching water salvation. It's interesting, though, in this passage, Jesus refers them to... Uh, uh, refers to a, st- a story in the Old Testament when Israel had once again rebelled against God and were facing the consequence of that. And God had a plan of salvation. Uh, Moses lifted up a bronze uh, snake and they had to look at it. What if they had the attitude many have today who cry, water salvation? You know what? Those crying snake salvation, refusing to look, refusing to submit in faith and trust that God's plan will work, those who cried snake salvation got bit and died. People say, well, John 3.16 emphasizes that we're saved by belief, that we're saved by faith only. And certainly the Bible teaches we are saved by faith, but the only time you'll find the phrase faith only in the entire Bible is in James chapter 2 where we're told you are not saved by faith only. That is a faith that's dead, without works, without evidence, without proof. How does the Bible define faith? How does the Bible define, how does John, how does Jesus define belief? What does it mean to believe in the Bible? Not the way the dictionary defines it or Christendom or denominations define it. What is the Bible? How does the Bible define belief in faith? In this very chapter, Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But what does it mean to believe so that we have life? Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. According to Jesus, the opposite of believing is not obeying. Belief includes the concept of obedience. Paul bookended the book of Romans, justification by faith, with the phrase, first chapter, last chapter, obedience of faith. First John makes it clear we don't know the Son. We can't abide in the Son if we don't keep His commandments. And so when John emphasizes belief, often in response to Gnosticism, who denied the humanity and the deity of Christ, and that we've got to believe that, we've got to continue to believe that, he's using a figure of speech that we find very often in the Bible, known as synecdoche, where the part is put for the whole. We talked about that a little bit when we did our series on 1 Peter. Peter begins that epistle by rejoicing in our salvation, our hope, because of the new birth. And he says, we've been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Christ. When he says that we're saved, we're born again by the resurrection of Jesus, he's using that figure of speech, synecdoche, where the part is put for the whole. In saying that we're saved by the resurrection, he's not denying that we're saved by his death and burial. Those are included, encompassed in, we're saved by his resurrection. He's referring to the entire gospel with the part of the resurrection. And so when John talks about we've got to believe, he's including with that all that that entails, all that that encompasses, not a mental acknowledgement. John 12 talks about those who believed but didn't confess because of fear. James 2 talks about the devils believe. Belief and faith as defined by John and Jesus in the Bible is not intellectual, mental consent, but it includes the appropriate response of obedience and obedient faith. And that leads to our last question. Those who are born again do what? So much of what John's writing about is identifying real Christians versus fake Christians. How do we know that we're a real Christian and that we really have eternal life, that we really have the Son of God? And we're going to see him cycle back to these same themes the rest of our series. Life, light, love. And so, as Grayson read here, uh, those born of God practice righteousness. They don't practice sin. John is not teaching sinless perfection, even though it might sound like that. It can be discouraging if if you read this and think that I've got to be perfect. Chapter 1, 
Chapter 2, verse 1, we have an advocate. All make it very clear, we're not perfect. That's why we need an advocate. That's why we need propitiation. And I think, as I've studied 1 John, it's emphasized the importance of digging into words, phrases, even tenses. Sometimes we mention the tense of a word, present tense, future tense, past tense. And in studying this, there is some encouragement that I've received in studying 1 John that's come from looking at tenses that I wouldn't have received otherwise. That's filled me with tremendous hope and assurance. Jesus made arguments based on tenses. When the Pharisees and Sadducees were in this dispute about the resurrection and asking Him, is there a resurrection? How did He respond? God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Present tense. Not I was, I am. They're still living. They still exist. There will be a resurrection. He made an argument based on the tense of a word. And so these words, phrases, inspired by God are there for a reason, and we need to dig into them, to understand them, to appreciate them. And I want to share with you throughout this series why these tenses matter, and why looking at these words, looking at the tenses specifically, really makes a difference in our assurance. Those who practice sin, those who keep on sinning, he's not talking in the point tense, what's known as the aorist point tense, that's a moment in time. Think of it like a dot. I messed up because I'm not perfect, and I messed up again. There are points in time, certainly, that I, I do sin. He's talking about a line. He's talking about present active tense, living, continuing in sin, practicing sin like a doctor practices medicine. I point tense sin, but I'm not present active, content to sin. No one born of God is content to keep on sinning. He says, those born of God can't sin, can't keep on sinning. Now, I can keep on sinning if I want to, if I'm content to, but I'm not content to anymore because I've been born again. The dominion of sin has been broken. Christ came to destroy that in my life. That seed that brought me to life of the new birth, the seed of the Word, the seed of the Gospel, has remained in me so that I become like my Father. And His character is the opposite of sin. Jesus said in John 15, without me you can do nothing. If you abide in me and I abide in you and my word abides in you, you'll bear much fruit. The psalmist said, thy word have I, have I kept in my heart that I might not sin against thee. When I'm tempted to, to lie or steal or fornicate or whatever the temptation is, that word remains in me so that I cannot be content to keep on sinning anymore. I've been changed. And so we see this balance throughout this book. John warning us about hypocrisy being a fake Christian like the Gnostics, claiming to know something, claiming to believe something, claiming to be born again when we're not. John, God, do not want us to use grace and forgiveness and propitiation and advocacy as license to sin. And he makes that crystal clear we're going to see throughout this series. But he also stresses we do have an advocate when we point tent sin. We do have propitiation. And so we have to appreciate and balance these two truths as people who have been born again. A born-again person does not respond to the truth. We have an advocate with, good, I'm going to go on practicing sin. <laughs> a born-again person is amazed by the love and grace and forgiveness of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God to where we lament sin, we hate sin, but we don't despair. Not to the point of doubt. True children center their life on the gospel. We can't be content to keep on sinning, yet we're not sinlessly perfect. John makes that clear. So the proof that we're born again is that we're walking in the light. Continuous, that direction in life. 
It doesn't mean that we're sinless, but it means that we see and savor God, Christ, the truth. We see sin in a new light, God's light, and we respond accordingly. A person who's walking in the light sees their sin, confesses their sin, repent. He, he sees it the way God does. He hates it. He's sorry for it. He repents of it. He doesn't stubbornly dig in. We no longer resist the commandments of God. We no longer view them as burdensome because we've discovered His burden is light. It doesn't mean that they're not ever hard. There's no self-denial. But it means I now see them and savor them not as a burden in my life, but as a blessing. For my eternal good and for His glory. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. What a a powerful statement made in chapter 5, verse 4. Verse 1 leading into this says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Again, that word is in the present active tense. Not point tense. Not I believed when I was born again and I quit believing. You have to continue to believe. And all of that encompasses. Continue to have an obedient faith. And something in this belief, something in this trust, something in this faith, strips the power of the world to make us view the Word of God as burdensome. Keeping the commandments is now a privilege and a pleasure, and that's the heart of saving faith and walking in the light is love for God and love for His Word. We treasure and we value now as a result of the new birth. And that leads to this last evidence where there's new birth, there's new love. John makes it clear, no one who's begotten of God, no one can love God if you don't love what God loves. If you don't love God's children. That's what the Gnostics, they didn't love God, they didn't love the truth, they didn't love God's people. That's what got John fired up the most. Often referred to as the apostle of love because of his emphasis on love. There's a tradition in his uh, later years, they had to carry him around. He'd get up with his cane to address the congregation with these simple words. Little children love one another. And the new birth is a change of affections, love, values, perspectives. What we love, what we don't love. Love not the world, 1 John 2, proves that we've been born again. Before we are born again, we love the sin, we hated God. We hated God's Word. Our affections have changed in the new birth. We once lived in sin and we loved it. Now we desire deliverance. We hate it. We were once self-confident and self-reliant. Now we're humbled and we trust in the goodness and righteousness of God. We once denied that we had sin. Now we confess it. Now we repent of it. Now we deny sin in a new way as a result of the new birth. We desire God. We desire His goodness. And that's an indication that we're new. That's an indication that we have life. And John made it clear, you have to be in Christ to have this assurance. You have to abide in Christ to have this assurance. If you're in Christ, if you abide in Christ, you have Christ as your propitiation, you have Christ as your advocate. His death counts as your death. His righteousness counts as your righteousness. But if you're not in Christ, if you don't abide in Christ, you don't have Him as propitiation, you don't have Him as advocate. How do I get into Christ? Romans 6, Galatians 3, John 3, Great Commission, believe and be baptized into Christ. And we sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit and washed in His blood. And that assurance is not available through any form of insurance. We think about how we like to insure things of value, the most important insurance you could have Soul insurance, soul assurance, you won't find it with Allstate or State Farm. You can't buy it from the gecko, geico, lizard, or pig. Blessed assurance was purchased 2,000 years ago on a cross. In the incarnation, the crucifixion. Do you want that to be your story? Do you want that to be your song? 
Give your life to the Lord and praise and follow Jesus all the day long for the rest of your life. This is my story. This is my song. And to state that with complete confidence and assurance is not arrogant or presumptuous, not denying that I know that I am imperfect, but it's because I believe. And I've been born again. And I continue to believe in all of my imperfection as I strive and I struggle every day to walk with Christ in light and the newness of life. This is my story. This is my song. Is it your song? Is it your story? If you want to make it your song and your story, the Lord invites you to come as we stand and sing.